0: People can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone.
1: Creativity, talent,
0: genius, it's all a team sport. We
2: have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before.
0: I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen.
3: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me, Chris Smith, and with Kate Lamble. Hello, Kate. Hello, and this week, how we
4: could use bacteria to repair concrete, the invisibility cloak for your pets, and on top of the world, what happens to our bodies when we climb Mount Everest.
3: If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or look us up on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scientists.
5: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk.
3: First though, let's take a look at what's been happening in the world of science with Science News Headlines. And kicking off, I've got a story all about eyes. One of the big goals of vision restoration is really how we can do gene therapy to stop degenerative diseases of the eye which are very common things like retinal degeneration secondary to macular degeneration is a very common condition maybe 20 30 percent of people over the age of 60 might be developing this we think we might be able to prevent some of these conditions by using vectors to put genes into the cells in the retina that break down during these diseases to protect them One problem, though, is getting good vectors that can do this. Scientists have had some limited success by using viruses, including one type of virus called an adeno-associated virus, but the numbers of cells that they're able to reach like this have been fairly limited, and they also tend to cause inflammation in the eye when they do this. But there's a very encouraging paper. It's in Science Translational Medicine this week by David Schaffer and his colleagues at the University of California at Berkeley, and they have used evolution, effectively, to help them to do this better. So they have taken an adeno-associated virus, they inject this virus into experimental animals, into their eyes, then they go in a few days later and they collect the virus just from the rods and cones in the retina, extracting the genetic material of the virus, and then they copy the genetic material using the polymerase chain reaction, but they introduce some genetic mistakes – and then they remake the viruses and do the whole thing again and they keep doing this process of selection two or three times and of course what they're doing is optimizing for viruses that are very good at making their way to and infecting the photoreceptors the rods and cones ultimately they get a variant of their adeno-associated virus called 7m8 and this seems to be at least five times better at getting into the rods and cones in the retina than previous gene therapy vectors that we've made and they do a, a mouse model of a disease which is called retinoschisis, and this is a, a hereditary condition animals and people who have this develop holes in their retina and what they're able to do is to put a healthy copy of the gene that people who have this condition don't have into their vector then injected it into the eyes of these experimental animals and what they find is that animals that receive this vector have a healthy looking retina when they look at four months later So it does appear to work very effectively and it does appear to infect lots of cells in the retina.
4: If this is possible to move into humans, would we still need to inject the virus or is there another way of getting there? I ask because my mum when she was a kid had massive problems with her eyes and they put needles in her eyes and she's been left with the greatest phobia in humankind. She talks about the the most horrible experience of her life. Is that something that other patients are going to have to go through?
3: Well, one of their motivations for doing this study, Kate, was that at the moment we have to do injections into what's called the subretinal space. You've got to get right in deep into the retina to get the virus to where the photoreceptors, the rods and cones, are. Now, this technique, they think it works because the changes that the virus accrues during this evolution in the eye mean that it doesn't stick onto the cells it shouldn't stick onto. It slowly changes so that the virus only goes into those rods and cone cells. This means that actually you can inject it far less traumatically. You don't have to go into that sub retinal space you can just go in just into the vitreous the jelly inside the eye and the virus will then find its way to the target so actually it means that those injections probably will be a lot easier for patients in future
4: that's great news for people with these kind of conditions then. I've been looking into something completely different and that's sympathy. Now sympathy is crucial for human coexistence. It's one of the reason why society is able to function but we've never really known how it develops. Around about two years old toddlers start to comfort their friends if they see them that something bad has happened to them but we don't know what happens before then. Now when babies are newly born they get this thing called emotional contagion and that means that if they see someone smiling they're automatically happy and if they see someone crying they start crying. But that's not necessarily the same as sympathy. That's just sort of copying or catching the emotion of those around you. And what this team from Kyoto University in Japan, which has been published this week in PLOS One, did, was they made some animations. And they had a blue ball and a yellow cube. What they had is one of those cubes was bad, and one of them was good. And the bad one started chasing the other one around and squishing it and hitting it and attacking it, and eventually squashing it to death, one would presume. And they showed this to 40 children who were all 10 months old and they watched which way their eyes moved but they didn't really watch one in particular but when they offered them a choice of the shapes at the end they all or a vast majority of them chose the victim in that case and they, then they introduced the neutral shape just to check that they weren't scared of the aggressive shape and they still again when they had a choice between the victim shape and the neutral shape they chose the victim and when they had a choice between the neutral and the aggressor they chose the neutral shape so this shows this from 10 months old They're understanding that bad things are happening to this thing and they're understanding they should feel sympathetic and it's not emotional contagion because obviously these shapes aren't appearing sad, they're not sitting around crying at the end, so they're not automatically feeling sorry for them. They're understanding that something bad has happened and they're experiencing what we presume is sympathy.
3: Did they reverse the shapes and did they swap the colours round as well because some kids have a preference for certain colours don't they?
4: They didn't swap them round in consecutive tests but half of them had the blue shape being bad and half of them had the yellow cube being bad so they did test that they were always choosing the victim whether they knew they preferred a certain shape or not so it's definitely that they're choosing the victim over anything else.
3: It's fascinating where did the dogma that kids aren't interested in the emotions of others until they're age two come from then? Was that just because there just wasn't any data or were people actively saying oh children don't get in to appreciating the emotions of others until they're two?
4: It's partly because there wasn't any data and partly because we don't recognise that there's this other orientation, this acknowledgement that there are other people going around with other emotions going on and this idea of self-recognition until we're about two. Other things like theory of mind, understanding that other people might think differently from you come again a little bit later on around three or so. So it's mainly because we hadn't really looked into it but partly because, from my experience, toddlers are very me. That's mine, don't take it away from me. and very quite selfish. They don't think about other people. Not necessarily their fault.
3: My son's first word was definitely fine. Now, the dream of invisibility... It goes back at least to the Greeks, whose god of the underworld, Hades, is supposed to have had a helmet of invisibility. But this week, scientists at the Nanyan Technological University in Singapore unveiled a video of a goldfish and a cat disappearing and then reappearing again behind a new invisibility cloak that they developed. If you haven't seen it yet, then we're going to put a link to this on our website, nakedscientist.com, so you can check it out. But in the meantime, here's the quick fire science on what's happened with Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford.
6: At the moment, objects like tanks can only be disguised using cameras to project the view behind onto screens covering the front of the tank. This was seen on a car in the James Bond movie, Die Another Day.
7: However, this technology only works from one perspective, the angle the camera is facing. So if you spotted the tank from a different angle, it would distort and damage the illusion. But in 2006, British researcher Sir
6: John Pendry came up with a way of bending light around an object to create a cloak
7: which would make it invisible to the naked eye. However, when light waves are bent around an object, they have to travel further than the light unaffected by the cloak. This means the bent light arrives slightly later than it should, so the image isn't perfect. To correct this, the bent light waves have to appear to move faster than the unaffected light travelling in air, which
6: is impossible with natural
7: materials. Cloaks like this have been built successfully with artificial metamaterials, made with carefully designed structures smaller than the wavelength of light but they've only been able to hide objects from view in microwaves rather than visible light. To disguise
6: large objects in visible light, the team in Singapore decided to see how well they could
7: manage with conventional materials, not worrying about whether the light was delayed. They use prisms of light in a hexagon or square, which refract the light through one another around the object. So even if the object is a pet and moves inside the prisms, it looks like it's disappeared. This can still only be seen from a maximum of six angles, but the hope
6: is that they will be able to increase this by changing the layout
7: of the prisons. They've managed to hide goldfish and even a cat in a real-life environment and hope it could be used for surveillance and even entertainment.
4: That was Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford with this week's Quickfire Science, which you can also download separately as its own podcast from our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash quickfire science. More news now and earlier today I spoke to science journalist Mark Peplow about some rather strange goings on in Siberia.
8: More
5: than 100 years ago back in 1908 a huge blast ripped open the sky in a region of Siberia called Tunguska. It flattened more than 2,000 square kilometres of forest all around. Eyewitnesses said that they saw this huge object tearing through the atmosphere and then exploding, as it turned out, probably a few kilometres above the ground. It's estimated that this explosion was the equivalent of about three to five megatons of TNT, that's five times more powerful than the biggest US nuclear weapon. Obviously, the leading theory for this is that something came from space, a chunk of an asteroid or perhaps a comet, and broke up on entry. But the trouble is, scientists have never actually found any residues. There's like no fragments been recovered, despite the fact that there have been many scientific expeditions. And that's left the way open for lots of speculation about other possible causes, antimatter, black holes, aliens, all sorts of things. I think it's even featured in an episode of the X-Files. What's happened now is that a group led by Ukrainian scientists called Viktor Kvasnitsya has identified very small fragments of rock, less than a millimetre wide each, um, that look very much like they came from a meteor. They're in the right sort of layers of peat, which would date them at exactly the right time that that explosion happens. These look like our strongest candidates ever of rock from that explosion.
4: I actually gave this a bit of a Google before we had a chat, and there are pictures on there of thousands and thousands of trees just sort of lying down on their sides. Because it's such a massive collision, why haven't we found a large lump of rocks? Why are we only finding these tiny fragments?
5: Well, that's the thing. What happens, if you have something coming from space that was basically a, an iron-based asteroid, then it would be dense enough to survive fall through the Earth's atmosphere, and you would expect to find large chunks, actually, of iron strewn around the region. You'd also expect to see a massive crater, like the huge crater in Arizona, for example. What scientists think with the Tunguska event was that it was a more fragile body, basically. It wasn't as dense, it wasn't as strong, and that's why it broke up. And when it broke up in this huge explosion, it just would have almost vaporized all of the material into tiny, tiny fragments. Now, previous expeditions have found hundreds of what they call black magnetic spherules, tiny balls of material, basically, in soil, but they've never really been unequivocally proved to be part of To Sunguska meteor. These fragments, in contrast, because they're bigger, you can get an awful lot more information out of them. They've got a form of carbon in them called Lonsdaleite, and that's got a crystal structure that's sort of halfway between graphite and diamond. Only forms under extreme heat and pressure, and you do often find it in meteorites. They've also found minerals, iron-based minerals, one of them an iron-nickel alloy that's sort of veined through the carbon and it's in a proportions and a composition that's very, very similar to that of other iron-rich meteorites. Is
4: this comprehensive, though? Are all asteroids the same? Is there a certain signature that we can say that definitely comes from a meteor?
5: Well, there's one thing that doesn't fit, which is why there's still going to be debate about this. Almost all meteorites tend to have very high levels of quite rare metals called iridium and osmium, which, on the Earth, all tend to be deep below the Earth's crust, so you don't find much of it on the surface. So where you find sort of high concentrations of it, very often they have come from objects from space. These samples have got levels of iridium and osmium that are sort of halfway between what you'd expect to find in terrestrial rocks and what you'd expect to find in space rocks. So there's some uncertainty about that. The team are now going back to do further isotope tests to try and determine their extraterrestrial origin.
4: But until that happens, I suppose the conspiracies
5: will continue. They're so much fun, so I'm sure they will.
3: Mark Peplo, thank you very much to him for joining us. Leprosy now, and this was a major scourge in medieval times. We don't know where it went, though. In about the 16th century, it completely disappeared from the Western world. And although there are still hotspots of leprosy around the world today, in fact the WHO think there's probably about a quarter of a million cases every year, the scourge that it was is largely one that has disappeared. Why? Well, we just don't know. One answer to this question could be lurking in the genetic material of leprosy victims from, say, a thousand years ago when it was very common, if we could find some. Well, this week there is a paper in the journal Science which has done just that. Johannes Krauser, who's a researcher at the University of Tübingen in Germany, has obtained skeletal remains from initially 22 skeletons that seemed to have suggestions in the bones that these people had been infected with leprosy. And five of them, they're able to extract DNA from Mycobacterium leprae, the bug that causes leprosy. And they have got such high-quality genetic information from these skeletons that they have been able to completely genomically sequence the mycobacterial that these individuals must have had maybe more than five, six, seven hundred years ago. And they have rebuilt the genome and directly aligned it with the genome of the leprosy cases that we see today. So they can ask the question, well, was it different then, making it much more common, compared with today the answer is no it is not it is almost identical compared with today there was one other interesting item that emerged which is that when they compared modern day American uh, cases of leprosy with strains that were in these individuals from hundreds of years ago It strongly suggests actually that Europe and probably Britain gave America leprosy.
4: I was actually looking at some photos today of one of the last ever leper colonies in China and it's odd that it seems so rare now even in parts of the world, the Chinese countryside which is still developing. If the DNA and sort of the genetic sequence of leprosy hasn't changed, is it just the way we fight it? Have we got better at treating the disease?
3: They speculate that perhaps this is because some other pathogen that was circulating alongside leprosy and was making people vulnerable to it has similarly gone away, meaning people are less vulnerable to it. Perhaps living conditions improved sufficiently to mean people were less vulnerable. Leprosy spreads via close personal contact, probably droplets from individuals who have it because it it invades the respiratory tract and also the skin. We don't think the skin is infectious but certainly people could breathe out the droplets. Maybe overcrowding was something to do with it and a combination of poor nutrition, overcrowding and some other factor could have made people vulnerable in the same way as they were vulnerable to plague and maybe those conditions still sort of exist or at least Some of them exist in third world countries where you still see leprosy but for the most part the whole human race is relatively healthy compared to how they were and as a result we don't see it so much anymore.
4: Well, we've been talking a lot today about biology news, but I've got some engineering news as well. And this isn't a paper that's come out, but instead it's a grant that's been given to some research that is just about to start, which I think is really quite exciting. And that's a three million grant that's been given to teams across Bath, Cardiff and Cambridge universities to look into self-healing concrete. Now, we all think of concrete as this material which sort of sits around and lasts forever. And I've still got lumps of it down the bottom of my garden from decades ago, which aren't really doing anything. But it's very important and obviously structural integrity of buildings and over time tiny little cracks that form in the concrete let in water and that water freezes and the cracks get bigger and eventually it gets through to the steel frame which reinforces large blocks of concrete particularly around foundations or those big office blocks that we see being put up nowadays. Now when that steel frame gets corroded it really affects the strength of the concrete completely and it stops the tension that pulls all the concrete together so it's a real problem. It's also a bigger problem because cement production produces around 7% of the world's CO2 production. So if we can reduce the amount of concrete and cement that we're producing, particularly when we're replacing buildings, then we can reduce our overall CO2 emissions. Now, the idea that they've come up with is being able to use bacteria, which produce calcite, which is a little bit like limestone. We heard a couple of weeks ago that St Paul's is made out of limestone. So it's this really good building material. And the idea is that if you can impregnate concrete as it goes in when it's still liquid with tiny micro capsules which contain these bacteria when a crack forms in these capsules are broken open these bacteria can start to produce calcite or limestone and not only will they fill up the gap but that production of calcite uses up oxygen that also means any oxygen that's getting in to corrode that steel frame will be used up at the same time so it's a really clever idea that they've just started to work on that's I...
3: really ingenious I'm so, sorry i'm just so excited <laughs> sorry to interrupt kate but the only thing i can see might be a slight stumbling block here is Isn't the concrete under quite a lot of compression? If you make a huge great tower block, like the shard or something, then the concrete at the bottom is going to be under enormous compressive load from above. Will the bacteria withstand that?
4: There's a huge number of problems that they're having to overcome. I've had a chat with some of the team today and yet these capsules need to withstand a huge amount of weight and at the same time they're still hoping that they'll be able to sort of split open and be activated by just water. So they need to be strong and instantly dissolvable at the same time which is a problem they haven't really yet overcome but they have solved the idea of the bacteria which also need to overcome these huge alkaline conditions. Concrete's really alkaline so they're choosing bacteria from soda lakes to start to test the right ones to do and they also need to be able to survive hundreds of years that concrete sits around and it might crack in a very long time so they've decided to use these bacteria which produce inert internal spores so anthrax is an example of bacteria which does this Obviously they won't be using anthrax because that's quite dangerous for people. (laughs) Reassuring. (laughs) Reassuring. But there are lots of other different bacteria who have this same thing. So if they can work out a way of triggering these bacteria to germinate at will, then they'll be able to release their spores hundreds of years later, pick up some food that they're going to deposit nearby and start producing calcite.
3: So you've got to package up bacteria plus food in a long-lived capsule so the bugs can hatch out, consume the food, consume the oxygen, lay down new rock, reinforce the concrete.
4: Yes, easy really. Some Dutch scientists have already looked into this. It's looking promising, but their only problem has been having bacteria which survive over a long period of time. So hopefully, once they've gone through this huge long process of picking out the bacteria, they should be able to get somewhere with it. So there's a lot of stuff to work through, but it's quite exciting. It
3: certainly is. Thank you, Kate. And if you want to look up the references to any of those stories we've been discussing, then you can find those on our website at nakedscientists.com slash news. Now to the subject of smoking. And a new German study, which is out this week in the journal BMJ Open, has investigated whether exposure to smoking adverts can turn teenagers to subsequent smokers themselves. Mathis Morgenstern from the Institute of Therapy and Health Research in Kiel, Germany, is the lead author on the paper. Mathis, now for a long time, the tobacco companies have maintained that they don't target teenagers actively with their advertising. They say they're just trying to increase the market share among adult smokers for their brand. Would you agree with that?
8: Yeah, this is indeed an interesting question. I mean, maybe we could start with the question why why we should study such a seemingly trivial thing at all. I mean, if advertising has no effect, then it wouldn't exist. But yeah, the argumentation is indeed about what does it mean that advertising is effective? The one view is that it is just making bigger market shares for different brands and tobacco products. And the other question, which is actually more interesting from a public health perspective, is if advertising is bring the cake not to get smaller and there we are with the effect of advertising on people that are not smoking and this is done especially for youth. This is not so easy to study actually because if you think of how to implement such a study you would have to randomize youth to two conditions, two environments where they're having advertising or not And this is actually not feasible to do. It's not
3: ethical to force feed people tobacco advertising and then see if they then turn into a smoker, is it? I suppose that if you look at what the WHO have said, they have said that smoking is linked to cancer and heart disease and a raft of other disorders and that advertising or direct promotion of it should be banned under certain circumstances. Some countries, like the UK, have been very good about this and it's very hard to advertise smoking-related products now. Other countries, like the US and certainly Germany, your country, is a little... bit more relaxed. So I think if if we had clear evidence that these adverts in whatever form are turning teenagers into smokers, then this would presumably be a nail in the coffin or at least compelling evidence that they should stop advertising.
8: Yeah, indeed. I mean, our study is not the first and the only study on this subject. There is indeed a lot of evidence on the effects of advertising on youth, but the problem may be on transferring this information to those who um, decide on the priorities of interest. I mean, Germany in fact has ratified the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, the FCTC of the WHO. There would actually be a lot of reasons also in Germany for banning tobacco advertising, but it's not in plan.
3: So how did you actually do your study and what did you test?
8: A good study design would be an experimental design, but what we are doing here are so-called observational studies. So we are predicting youth behavior And what we did is we surveyed about 3,000 youth in 2008 on their smoking status, and in addition, they also measured exposure to tobacco advertising. This was done by images of tobacco ads, and they also asked a question about non-tobacco ads, which is the added value also of this study, the question how specific the advertising behavior link is. we have exposure to tobacco advertising, exposure to non-tobacco advertising and smoking status at baselines. And then two and a half years later, we looked at who has become an established smokers of those who never smoked before.
3: And then you're you able to compare what was the rate of exposure to advertising when you first surveyed them with what happened two and a half years later?
8: Yeah, I mean, the exposure to advertising, we only assessed it at baseline. And then we could see, can the inter-individual differences in exposure predict initiation of established and daily smoking and this over and above other known risk factors so keeping all these other risk factors constant is there some predictive value of this exposure and indeed we found that quite robust relation if you look at those in the lowest part of the exposure area this was about four to five percent daily smokers and this went up to about 12 to 13 percent daily smokers in the group of high exposure.
3: Does it matter what fraction of the advertising is tobacco smoking or is it just total exposure to tobacco adverts that determines whether someone has a higher or lower risk of turning into a smoker?
8: One point you could argue here is that those kids that have high values on the tobacco advertising exposure, these are just kids that have high exposure to advertising in general. But what we could show in this study was quite clearly that there was absolutely no relation to exposure to advertising in general to smoking behaviour. It was only the exposure to the tobacco advertising.
3: Some would argue, I suppose, cynics, that uh, this is sort of what they would dub research into the blinking obvious because we know, as you started out by saying advertising must work because for companies to spend the amount they do on it they must have evidence that the ends justify the means. So what do you think this adds and where should we take this next?
8: With all these areas where you are forced to do observational studies it's always about the question of causality. If you look for example at the relation of smoking and lung cancer there's no Experimental evidence, but no one would ever doubt about the causal causal role of tobacco smoke on lung cancer, and this is also the case here. You cannot show causality with one single study, so this is like building a, a wall and this is one brick in the picture of the causal role of tobacco advertising for smoking.
3: So your recommendations, if you could make some, on the basis of what you've discovered, would be what?
8: it is a question of the priority of interests. If the health of young people or the number of smokers in a society has a high priority, I think there should be the recommendation to ban tobacco or advertising from this point of view.
3: Mathis, thank you very much. That's Mathis Morgenstern from the Institute for Therapy and Health Research in Kiel, Germany.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lamble, and with Chris Smith.
3: And now a new feature which we're introducing from this week, our mailbox. We're taking a look at some of the things that you've written in with to talk to us about.
4: So stefan has got in touch from Sweden. She says, Thanks for putting my baby to sleep. Uh, she lives in Sweden and she's found this wonderful routine where she plays The Naked Scientist for her baby while she walks around. Apparently it keeps her alert and entertained while it sends her baby right
3: to sleep. If you'd like to write in, <laughs> it's chris at com. Uh, you can also tweet at Naked Scientist or you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientist. Comments or criticisms, all feedback, all welcome.
4: And John's also getting in touch to ask us this question. He says... When we spill water on a tile floor, we might slip and bash our head. But when we want to turn the page of a book, we lick our fingers to get traction. What's going on here?
3: Do you know, a lot of people don't like that finger-licking business with pages because of the potential... The for horrible noise. Yeah, Well, uh, that and the germ transmission. But I was thinking about this. Why should a wet floor be slippery while a finger that's licked and then applied to a piece of paper should enable you to get a better grip? The wet floor is quite simple to explain because there you've got a lubricant, a liquid, between the sole of your shoe and the floor and therefore the friction will be lower and therefore when you push against the floor to try and walk you're more likely to slip. With the finger, slightly subtle this, if you lick your finger you're putting a film of water over the end of your finger. If you then apply that to the page, you're going to squeeze air out from under your finger, between your finger and the page, and the water as a thin film around the edge is going to prevent the air getting back in, so there's going to be effectively a vacuum, or at least a partial vacuum, between your finger and the page surface, at least for a little while, and that's going to help you get a better grip, I think. Anyway, as I've said, if you want to get in touch with us with your comments or questions for us to look at in this part of the show, just write in. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks, Kate.
4: Now, extreme sports fans have always tested themselves to the limits, but now an understanding of how our bodies react to extreme environments is helping medical professionals treat critical patients in intensive care. Throughout the rest of the show, we'll be talking to a range of experts to find out how the likes of mountaineering and freediving are helping us track the limits of human survival. First up, we're joined by Dan Martin from the Centre of Altitude and Extreme Environment Medicine at University College London. You climbed to the summit of the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, in 2007 as part of the Extreme Everest project. Now, apart from making me incredibly jealous, what can we do on that mountain that can give us an insight into how our bodies change at
2: altitude? Well... The purpose of going there in 2007 was to look at how volunteers adapted to the very low levels of oxygen not only going up the mountain but also coming to base camp where we had a big laboratory set up because we wanted to see if we could pick out physiological mechanisms that would determine who would do well and who would do less well at altitude and perhaps this would allow us to understand more about a similar situation which is patients on intensive care units who pretty much all of them at some point in time during their stay on an intensive care unit are exposed to very similar levels of oxygen in their bloodstream.
4: Now while you were on your way back down from the summit you actually drew your own blood and came up with the lowest amount of blood oxygen ever recorded. How did it feel to get that
2: record at the time? At the time we obviously didn't realise how low the numbers were. A little group of us stopped just below the summit and the weather was not precisely what we wanted it to be on the day as weather is from time to time. It was a little bit too windy to strip off and expose ourselves because you have to take the blood from an artery in your groin so we have to take off those big down suits that you see people wearing on the summit of Everest. So we dropped down a little bit, made a little shelter, took the blood from each other, and then rushed the samples down the mountain. And it was only much later in the day when we saw the figures from our laboratory where it was processed. And we were really quite surprised at just how low those figures were.
4: Were you wearing the oxygen masks at the time? Because I know a lot of climbers wear those to get them to the summit of Everest. Would that have affected your blood oxygen level?
2: So we did climb with oxygen and we certainly summited wearing oxygen because we felt it to be safer that way. But when we came down to the shelter where we took the samples from, we took the oxygen off and then sat and rested for about 20 minutes, half an hour to ensure that the oxygen had flushed out, if you like, of our bloodstream and then we took the samples.
4: You were talking a a little bit earlier about how different people physiologically react to the altitude. If you had the lowest amount, does that mean that you reacted worse to other people and why might that be?
2: What it may demonstrate is that me and probably lots of other people, but it's just that they haven't been tested, have an amazing ability to adapt to these very low levels of oxygen. And actually, whether your blood level is high or low may not be relevant at all. And it's the adaptive processes that are going underneath, which we are really interested in.
4: It's not just about the amount of oxygen in our blood, though, as you just mentioned. It's Mm. also about how it reaches our tissues. How does that change at altitude? How do we know how much oxygen is actually getting to our tissues and how effective that system is coping with the altitude?
2: In 2007, we looked at a lot of the processes which govern what we call oxygen delivery, so how much oxygen leaves your lungs and your heart and is pushed around your circulatory system to the tissues which require it. And what's interesting from what we found is that there's barely any difference between the people who do well and the people who do less well with the amount of oxygen that's delivered, and that also mirrors what we see on intensive care units. So what we're really focusing on now is how the oxygen is delivered on a microscopic scale within something called your microcirculation, the very tiny blood vessels which pass through all your tissues and organs. And even further than that, how the tissues and cells use that oxygen. So the mitochondria in the tissues and how they respond differently in different people. We're
4: all familiar with that casualty image of that oxygen mask over patients' faces though, I suppose. And that's a little bit similar to the climbing mask that you wear. Mm. If we're looking at oxygen on a micro level, is that oxygen mask that we imagine in in intensive care, how do we know that that that's helping in the right way.
2: Well, it may not be helping, and that's part of the strategy that we're looking into. Oxygen is very harmful, it's a toxic substance, and given in high concentrations, it's very damaging to the tissues in your body. So what we're striving to find is an alternative way to treat people who've got low levels of oxygen, and that may involve using drugs and strategies to alter what's happening at a cellular level. We know that the mitochondria behave very differently when they're exposed to low levels of oxygen for a prolonged, Amount of time, and it may be that we can alter the way in which they work eventually using some sort of medication.
4: When you go to Everest, you go up the stages of altitude quite slowly to avoid altitude sickness, and so over time, your body becomes acclimatized to the low levels of oxygen that you mentioned a little bit earlier. When we go into an intensive care ward and that person has low levels of oxygen, they haven't had time to acclimatize to it. Is the idea, I suppose, of trying to work out how we can get intensive care patients to bring on that more effective system of handling low oxygen levels?
2: Yes, absolutely. What we're not trying to do is to look at the very acute injuries that people may have. Say they have a road traffic accident, for example, and are brought into the accident and emergency department. That's a very acute change in the amount of oxygen in their blood. And those people most definitely need oxygen to get them through that. But as you get slowly sicker and sicker, and we look after patients on the intensive care unit for weeks and months on end, they will produce the same sort of adaptations that climbers produce as they're climbing big mountains and we may be able to alter the way in which that happens for the people who are not doing it very well such that their cells and microcirculation may work better in low levels of oxygen
4: can we encourage those adaptations to take place?
2: We certainly may be able to. We are looking at a substance called nitric oxide, which is a naturally occurring substance in the body which helps to control the microcirculation and also to alter how the mitochondria work under different circumstances. And we've already looked at a previous experiment when we went to the Alps in 2010 at altering the amount of nitric oxide in your body to see if it will alter cellular processes when you're exposed to low levels of oxygen.
4: Still doing these trips to Everest and these trips to other sort of high mountainous areas. What are the next sort of experiments that we can do up there to further our knowledge of low oxygen levels?
2: We've no plans to return uh, in the near future, but another strategy that we use, and we've been working with our colleagues in the United States, at Duke University, is they have a hypobaric chamber set up. And in the chambers, it's a far safer environment than perhaps being at the top of Everest. So we can do fairly invasive and very focused studies on small groups of people. So I think that's perhaps where we will take our work next to look at some very detailed studies in the future.
4: And how does that hyperbaric chamber work? Does that change levels?
2: Yes it does so it simulates high altitude. It's the opposite if you like to a hyperbaric chamber that people are more familiar with that treats divers with decompression illness. In this chamber the pressure is reduced rather than increased so it's as if you were ascending to high altitude but what it does mean is that you can have a very safe setup inside and you can get people out quickly if there are problems during experiments.
4: That's great thank you very much to Dan Martin from University College London.
3: Just as Dan was describing, knowing how climbers react to low oxygen environments at altitude could help us to develop treatments for intensive care. But free divers, these are individuals who go swimming around underwater with no oxygen supply, they have to take it all down with them in one breath. They also face very low oxygen conditions and an increasing pressure as they descend. And Peter Lindholm, who's based at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, researches the physiology of doing just this, and he's with us now. So when people do professional freediving, how deep do they go and how long do they have to hold their breath for?
9: The competitive divers, they can hold their breath and swim for something like four to five minutes, which gives them an opportunity to swim down to about 100 metres using their swim trunks basically no fins no nothing but if they use a monofin the record today is about 25 meters deeper if you compare that that's 250 meters which is about five lengths in the big olympic swimming pool so it's, it's quite a stupendous depth
3: isn't it what will they do before they go down to that depth to prepare themselves physiologically
9: first they train for a few years you must take that into account they're good swimmers and they have adapted their body to breath-holding in some extent, and they also have a good stamina and good physical shape. But if you're looking at what they're actually doing on the day, they would prepare most likely with not eating a lot. You don't wanna be too full. Then they prepare by warming up with a few breath-holds, shorter breath-holds to get into a a warm-up phase. Then they hyperventilate. And they usually hyperventilate for a few minutes, reducing the CO2, the carbon dioxide stores in their body, and also topping up a little more oxygen in their lungs and in their venous blood. So they actually maximize the amount of oxygen stores they could carry for this dive, and they severely reduce the carbon dioxide stores, which has a few other implications. And then... Before they go down, they use something they call lung packing, which I call glossopharyngeal insufflation or glossopharyngeal breathing, where they actually swallow air into the lungs. You can learn this maneuver, and you swallow air into your lungs, and you can actually pack this air down. And the best divers pack 50% extra air into their lungs compared to what their full lung volume would be without this technique.
3: Does that not have a consequence for it makes them a lot more buoyant?
9: Yes. So depending on what depth you're looking at, if you're looking at a shallow dive, you know, snorkeling around in 5 to 10 meters, you don't want to be too buoyant. But if you're going for 100 meters or deeper, they use lead weight. So they usually buoyance themselves. So they somewhere half down. They actually become uh, negatively buoyant. So they actually can sink down to the bottom, and then they have to swim up, and they're very heavy because the air is compressed at depth, so they actually become very heavy. And when you swim up, it's a tough swim in the beginning, but air will then expand, and it will give them great buoyancy in the end. The buoyancy at the end is a safety factor. It's good to be buoyant if you're tired or if something happens, you want to pop up.
3: Can we just return to the point you made about carbon dioxide first? Because you said there are some other manifestations in the body. When a person hyperventilates, they feel quite giddy. Is that sensible when you're going to be diving to more than 300 feet underwater?
9: If you hyperventilate regularly, like the divers do when they prepare for these dives, the brain adapts somehow, so they're not so giddy. But there are some other problems, and actually they can get giddy at depth because of nitrogen narcosis but that's another issue. If you had anything more about the carbon dioxide it comes with a certain risk too because if you do this you might not have the problem of being giddy if you are used to it but it takes out the respiratory drive so you might not feel the same urge to breathe as you would holding your breath normally.
3: And this of course means you may not notice that you're becoming extremely low in oxygen and you may not know when's the right time to surface
9: exactly if you swim to 100 meters you need to swim another 100 meters up so if you would just continue continue down and not look to get up you would probably reach 200 meters right so the divers have to decide to turn not depending on the carbon dioxide signal or the respiratory drive or the urge to breathe They have to decide that yesterday or last week I made 99 metres, I came up, I felt good, I feel strong today, I'll try 100 metres.
3: And at those stupendous depths and therefore pressures, because every 10 metres of water is 10 times atmospheric pressure, isn't it? So that's a huge amount of pressure. This will significantly squeeze the volume of air in the lungs down. Does this mean more oxygen is going to dissolve in the blood?
9: Yes. You actually can squeeze out more oxygen from the little there is in the lungs, but you'll have to sort of survive coming up because you have to pay that back when you go up. So the last 10 meters before you surface, the pressure will reduce very quickly. And if you have squeezed out too much of your oxygen, there is not enough left in the lungs to make you to the surface. So you could actually have a situation where you have put out too much oxygen into your body, you still have oxygen in that blood in their muscle, but the brain doesn't get enough oxygen during those last seconds of the surfacing.
3: If we look around the world, we haven't always had competitive Olympic free divers, but we have had people who have, in certain cultures and civilizations, become very good at diving very deep for very long times. I'm thinking of pearl divers and things like that. Are some people very good at doing this genetically?
9: There is still research to be done if we're going to decide how much is genetics and how much is training. But there are a few traits that makes you a better diver. The first, I would say, is big lungs. And people are different. Some people have actually bigger lungs to their body size than others. So that's one. Another trait is something we call the diving response. It's an ability to, when you hold your breath, reduce the heart rate. And that also has or depends on your ability to vasoconstrict, to limit the blood flow going to your limbs. What this means is that the body has an ability to reduce or limit the blood that flows to your not-so-important parts, depends what you mean with important. But in terms of oxygen supply, your muscles or bones or other skin or structure, they can survive for at least half an hour without oxygen, the brain cannot. So the body will save some of or conserve some of the oxygen in the lungs to be used by the brain uh, during this dive. And this diving response, the ability to vasoconstrict the vessels and reduce the heart rate varies a lot between individuals. So that would be two traits, which both has some potential to be trained But I think personally from the data I've collected and seen I think there is a, the, a bigger component is genetic than, than the training component in this.
3: So i better not give up my day job then. Thank you very much to Peter Lindholm from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden.
9: So do you have any
4: questions or comments about how our bodies change in extreme environments? If so let us know and we'll include it in our new feature the mailbox next week. You can email us here chris at com, tweet at Naked Scientist or find us on Facebook.
3: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Kate Lamble.
4: We've already talked about some of the challenges of free diving the lack of air, the pressure, but I think my first problem would be that the water is just far too cold. Now, Heather Lent from the University of Portsmouth investigates how the body responds to immersion in extremely cold water. Hi, Heather. Hi. So Heather, I at primary school used to have to swim in an open air swimming pool that had no heating and I was regularly hoiked out of my swimming lessons because I just turned blue in the face. So what happens to people like me who get put in incredibly cold water?
1: Well firstly, when you uh, go into cold water you can expect that uh, you'll have this large gasp followed by very fast breathing, uncontrollably fast breathing so you can't talk and a really high heart rate. Now we call this the cold shock response and this is what happens in the first couple of minutes of being in cold water. And I suppose that's not very helpful. As
4: you gasp, well, that cold water is going to be able to rush into your lungs. Is that anything, something you can learn to control?
1: Well, it's something that we can habituate to, we can get used to by repeated immersion in cold water. But really, the idea is that we should, where possible, enter uh, water slowly so that we reduce this cold shock response. And I know this advice sounds a bit pedantic when you're on dry land, but try not to panic and just keep your airway above the the water level. In a longer term, when you're sort of stuck in the water after that initial shock, what happens then? You've got over this uh, cold shock response. It takes about two to three minutes for your breathing to calm down. We start to see a gradual cooling of the body. Uh, It takes between three to 30 minutes and is really dependent on a large number of factors such as the water temperature that you're in, the amount of body fat that you have as well. And also you get what we call a cooling of the nerves and muscles and so you start to lack the ability to move your fingers and toes in a coordinated fashion.
4: What do we mean when we talk about extremely cold water? How cold are we talking that it starts to become dangerous and we start to lose this feeling and our ability
1: to keep afloat? When we talk about cold water, we're talking from normal sea temperatures Around the UK, standard sea temperature in, in summer would be between 15, 16, 17 degrees. We class that as cold, but we often see swimmers going into open water pools, into LIDOs at much lower temperatures. I personally swim in LIDOs
4: and I can guarantee that it is personally freezing and I find it a lot harder to swim outside in those cold temperatures.
1: At what, what point does it become dangerous and it affects our ability to swim? We regulate our body temperature around 37 degrees Celsius and we will vigorously defend that. We have what we term a clinically low deep body temperature at around 35 degrees Celsius. But long before we reach that low body temperature, the muscles and nerves of the arms will start to cool to the point where we're not able to coordinate action to swim. We then start to lose our coherence. And gradually, as we cool to around 30 degrees, we become unconscious. And after that point, death will ensue.
3: What about some people who are more vulnerable to being cold than others? If I go in the swimming pool, I usually last about 20 minutes max, whereas my wife, my daughter, who's you know, tiny compared with me, they can spend all day in there. Are there some people who are more vulnerable to being cold immersed well, than well, others? Um,
1: c- certainly uh, body fat is an indicator. The insulative layers that you have will reduce the rate at which you cool, Also, the amount of exercise that you're undertaking, it may be that uh, you may stand at the side of the pool and, and your daughter is very active in the water, so producing a large amount of heat to offset that cooling that's occurring despite her large surface area to volume ratio. And does anything
4: else affect that, apart from body fat, if mine is particularly high, but what can we learn about how we protect
1: ourselves within the water? If we know we're going into water, we can make sure we're wearing a life jacket or buoyancy aid. We can make sure that we don't thrash around too much. Air trapped in the layers of our clothing will add buoyancy. And also what we need to do is, once we've got over the cold shock response, we know that our fingers will start to cool rapidly within the first 30 minutes or so. And so we need to think about our exit strategy early before we start to lose the ability to use our fingers and hands in a coordinated fashion.
3: So if you are dumped in cold water, is it better to try to swim to stay warm or is it better to stay still and get a sort of bubble of warm-ish water around you so you lose heat less quickly?
1: That's a million-dollar question and that's still ongoing in terms of research. I'm going to sit on the fence here. It really depends on the situation you're in, the water temperature, and also your ability to, to actually swim to a point of safety and raise the alarm. So I'm going to sit on the fence here because there are so many factors involved that it has to be a coherent decision which is made depending on the situation you're in.
4: You also train, I think, Helen
1: Skelton, who did her experiment cycling to the South Pole. Yes, we did. Uh, that was a fantastic day, teaching her about not only about the risk of having a, a cold deep body temperature, but also the effects of cold air and how they can cause non-freezing cold injury, a condition of the, the nerves, but also how uh, it can cause frostbite. How do you go about
4: investigating this? You're based down in Portsmouth, I presume you don't just take people out into the sea and dump them in when you're ready.
1: We have well set up labs down here where we have ability to put people into cold water and a range of safety criteria so that we ensure that we don't get people dangerously cold. So we have not only a cold water tank an immersion facility, but also a cold air chamber as well.
3: Now I did hear, because when I used to sit in lectures at medical school, I remember uh, one person saying that there are some people who can swim in the Barents Sea, no problem. Mm -hmm. There are others that are far less resilient. And there was something special about those individuals. They didn't open up their blood vessels again when they got very, very, very cold. Because there is this paradoxical, you let loads of blood flow into your tissue when you get very cold, don't you?
1: Yes, we we do have what's called a hunting response. So we have investigated this to some extent where we uh, find that when the tissues become very cold, particularly in the, the fingers, we find that the arterioles, the blood vessels are paralyzed and the blood vessels are gradually opened and so release blood back into the tissues, rewarming the tissues of the of the hand. But then once the hand is warmed slightly, this then means that the muscles around the arterioles are able to contract again, causing that reduced blood flow again. And it's really, it's supposed to be a protective mechanism to prevent local damage to the tissues occurring from being too cold. We've been talking with Dan and so forth
4: about applications to a medical sense from what we're learning about this extreme environment, as well as understanding how we can save ourselves if we accidentally find ourselves in a very cold water environment. How else can we apply this?
1: Well, there's recent evidence within the, the medical literature, which I'm by no means an expert in, but they've shown that selective brain cooling can help with survival through operations so making people cold slows down the rate at which the cells of the body use oxygen and so buys them time that certain operations can be undertaken and they have fewer problems upon recovery from their operation by making their deep body cooler. Thank you so much to Heather Lunt there from the University of Portsmouth.
3: And finally Hannah has been breaking down this question of the week. This week, we send our searching eyes
8: to ponder our emotions. Hello, my name is Klaas, I'm from Sweden. What is the physiology behind emotional breakdown? Everybody has had the feeling in traumatic situations of getting all choked up, voice breaking, and tears welling up. What is happening in our bodies during such occurrences?
0: So what's going on in our bodies and brains during an emotional breakdown? And why is it that sometimes we can have such strong emotional reactions to things?
10: Hi, I'm Joe Herbert and I work in clinical neurosciences at Cambridge. So why do emotions take over? Well, they take over because they're so important. Because it ensures that things that are good for you arouse positive or pleasurable emotions and are therefore preferred whereas the opposite applies to things that are bad for you, which give rise to negative emotions. But secondly, it acts as a vital part of social communication. It recruits others to help you or join in, and recognising emotions in others is an essential ingredient of good social relationships.
0: And are there specific hormones or parts of the body involved in such emotional responses?
10: Your whole body takes part in emotions, including two rather special hormones. Adrenaline, which Americans call epinephrine, surges out when you're frightened or excited and makes your heart beat faster and your breathing become deeper. Your brain has an adrenaline surge of its own, and this makes you alert and pay attention. If your emotion runs high for much longer, a second hormone, cortisol, joins in, particularly if the emotional experience is stressful. Cortisol sensitizes your brain to unpleasant events, and makes you remember them better, so you avoid the situation that brings them about. We don't yet know whether the brain has special chemicals that signal fear or happiness or anger and so on, but it's possible they may exist.
0: Thanks, Joe. So strong emotional reactions are there to help us to communicate our feelings with others, and also to help us remember that particular situations should be avoided in the future. Well, sticking with reactions, we turn to next week's question.
7: Hello, Naked Scientists. My name is Ari Huttunen. I'd like to know, why do I feel sick because of too much exercise? When I have a too intensive workout, I sometimes have a sudden case of nausea during or afterwards. What makes this happen and what happens in the body?
0: Poor Aru. Is this something that you have experienced, sickness after physical exertion? And is there a reason for it? Send us your thoughts. You can get in touch by emailing studio at Scientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow.
3: And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Daniel Martin, Peter Lindholm and Heather Lunt. Thank you also to Kate Lamborgh for joining me. The production this week was by Dominic Ford. Next time, we're exploring the microscopic world of fungi, including why they're so toxic and what they can do to your organs. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.